These Saudi princes are VC douchebags. Jesus Christ, what a fucking nightmare. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 255 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. We are also very happy to be joined by a senior foreign policy writer at Vox, Jonathan Geyer, uh, who who has just done some amazing reporting, written a great article in Vox on the return of Saudi money to Silicon Valley, uh, and, and I mean, this article, we'll get into it, but the, some of the details, the things people say in public now and feel comfortable saying in public, it's just it, this relationship between um, Saudi Arabia and Silicon Valley is, is an old one, but it feels like it's just getting deeper and weirder. Um, so, Jonathan, thank you for, for coming on. Thanks for having me. So glad to be here. Yeah, so when you shared this article with us um and i was i i was truly like not expecting it to go uh, off the rails from the very beginning i i in fact i just want to read a couple quotes here um because you opened the piece with a uh a, a, a big investment conference that happened just this past uh march in miami um with a lot of uh investors and founders from silicon valley uh kind of you know, sh- really schmoozing um, Saudi Arabia and 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 looking to to tap into these vast flows of Saudi Arabian capital. And you you uh, have a couple quotes to start the piece that really I think just set the tone for for this whole relationship. So first up, we have you know the infamous Adam Newman, uh, the WeWork founder and now founder of some new vague real estate startup called Flow, uh, where Adam Newman uh, you know, on stage at the Miami conference hosted by the Saudi Arabian kingdom says, quote, the more I think about it, the more Saudi almost feels like a startup. <laughs> I mean, ridiculous. I mean, this lead wrote itself. I mean, I, it was a little bit of low-hanging fruit <laughs> here, but yeah. It's also wild because he says that to, I was telling Jathan before the show, but he also said that about Toussaint Louverture and the and the Haitian Revolution. He said that was a founder and uh, the revolution reprogrammed slave culture. <laughs> um, it's a real... That. 2017. It's fucking brain rot <laughs> to see the world in these terms and talk about it. But it's 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 also really common because you then immediately follow that up with saying venture capitalists Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen were pumped up too. Quote, Saudi has a founder. You don't call him a founder. You call him his royal highness. But he's creating a new culture. He's creating a new vision for the country. He's got a very exciting plan to execute. And the people in the country are fired up to do it, says Ben Horowitz. I mean, one, 
bro, word choice. You can't say MBS has a new plan to execute and people are fired up to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe not the best <laughs> the best um best wording of that as well for for uh, for our Silicon Valley friends. <laughs> I feel like some uh one of one of the uh this one of the Saudi handlers definitely like had a talking to him after he stepped off stage. Like, Ben, you need to think about your word choice. <laughs> But I mean, all right. So th- this conference just happened in uh, late Miami. Can you provide us a little bit of context here? Like, why do we have such high profile uh, founders and VCs like Adam Hor- uh, Newman, Ben Horowitz, Mark Andreessen, and many, many others, on, not only like meeting with Saudi Arabia, but but being on stage and and saying such really absurd and just like like the the uh the 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 brown nosing here is really on full display so can you provide us jonathan with a little bit of context for all of this absolutely well i i think there's there's two points broadly i want to make i mean one is just like the money money talks and that might seem obvious but there's a credit crunch right now uh, I don't usually cover the venture world. I come at this from like a foreign policy Middle East reporter. But, you know, people are going back to Saudi Arabia where a lot of the companies, Uber, DoorDash, et cetera, et cetera, were underwritten through, you know, uh, SoftBank Vision Fund and, and other uh, kind of venture conduits over the years. So I think that's the kind of the primary story here. But the second thing I think is kind of even more crucial is how kind of reputation laundering works. Because it's not really the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that's hosting this conference. It is, but it's the think tank started by an offshoot of the um the the sorry the sovereign wealth fund of the kingdom so it's like three steps removed from the crown prince i mean make no mistake this is basically the private think tank of mbs it's what's called davos in the desert it's what used to get really big star power before journalist jamal khashoggi was assassinated in turkey and then kind of cooled down and then it's been revving up in recent years so i've just been tracking it and tracking it and sort of seeing who are the speakers, who are the first ones to go back, and, and some of the first ones, not wholly surprisingly, to go to these Saudi-back uh, conferences were former Trump officials like Jared Kushner and, and others who were you know, really overtly making a buck off of this relationship that they had developed. Uh, but what was interesting about this Miami conference in late March is this is the first time that, you know, Adam Newman, whatever you want to say about him, he is a bold-faced name in the tech world. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz, I mean, these are guys that get headlines. And, you know, there hasn't quite been this kind of big tech star power yet to kind of welcome MBS and Saudi Arabia back into the fold. And so that's why this Miami moment was particularly interesting, I thought. Um, I mean, it was a lot of other kind of B and C listers or kind of celebrities like DJ Khaled and A-Rod were there. There was a representative from Semaphore, which, you know, sort of surprised some of the media world. There was the mayor of Miami. There was Steve Mnuchin, if you if you had forgotten about him and some other Trump folks. They showed up. A uh, uh, Trump official is currently with Goldman Sachs. Dina Powell McCormick was there. So it's sort of like a who's who of the people that are willing to go kiss the ring. And, you know, it was a pretty revealing panel because it's, 
Um, Adam Newman, his investors historically have been Andreessen Horowitz. So he's kind of up there with his bag men. And they're talking about going back and forth to Saudi Arabia, uh, how they're bringing their portfolio companies over there. Uh, so to pause for a second, that happens. A few days later, they announce, you know, these dozens of venture funds that have been getting money from Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund. And, you know, among those firms is Andreessen Horowitz. So that wasn't sort of fully understood, I think, while this panel is happening. So it's been a bit of a trickle out to understand the depths of this kind of really structural uh, problem, which is that Silicon Valley and all these startups that we kind of invariably use every day, all these apps, all these products are super dependent on Saudi dollars. I think that's also, you know, one thing that's really been fascinating over the years for me. You know, like I'm I was thinking about how you you, you, were, you were talking about and how I talked to you about uh, before about your you know the angle of your reporting and like the thing that had gotten me interested in tech and in to begin with had been Saudi Arabia's uh, relationship you know because I was really interested in Saudi Arabia and its role in the global system uh, in you know in, in upholding the petrodollar and its relationship with the United States in the Middle East and um, learning about the sovereign wealth fund and their visions for maybe not a post-oil society, but figuring out, you know, what to do with the oil wealth that they're, they're getting in a world that seems like it's probably going to try to decarbonize at some point in the next century or two. And and it's been really fascinating to see this constant push and struggle eventually to try and get back to venture capital. I would be curious if, you know, I you know maybe in the course of your reporting on this, right, I think you know, we talk a bit about how Generally speaking, there's a relationship, a strong relationship between tech and uh, national uh, security apparatus um, historically during the Cold War, and then attempts to revive that now during this sort of, uh, like you said, you know, during the credit crunches, during you know years where you might have um, you know lack of investor capital or lack of long-term investor vision, but also during this like weird attempt to you know restart a new. Cold War, at least a new geopolitical uh, conflict or competition with China. I mean, with Saudi Arabia, do you see an active courting coming from the United States tech sector and national security apparatus? Or is this solely like a relationship and a nexus that is happening between like Saudi Arabian capital needing a place to get a return, tech venture capitalists and tech... uh, entrepreneurs and investors needing you know a source of money that will probably probably never well, I'd say yes <laughs> you know all of the above I mean <laughs> yeah. I think the yeah. economics you know cannot be minimized because it's what what was reported by uh, Axios Bloomberg others is this is you know two billion dollars a year but I would speculate it's a lot more and historically if you look at what Saudi uh, this public uh, sovereign wealth fund gave through other conduits. It's it's really a higher order of magnitude than that. So that that's one thing. But I think geopolitics is equally important. Yes. I mean, Saudi Arabia is an interesting middle power in this moment where everything is great power rivalry. Everything's China and Russia. Saudi Arabia MBS. He's kind of been savvily maintaining relationships, going in between. I mean, we could talk about the moral hazards of working with him at length. And we could talk about him being a very brash young leader who I don't think has made good strategic, moral, ethical judgments throughout his 
time as deputy crown prince and crown prince, but he's sort of working these great powers against each other to get what he wants, which is a seat at the table. And so what we saw, you know, last summer was President Joe Biden having the biggest about face you can imagine after saying we're going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah on the campaign trail. He literally goes to fist bump the crown prince who, you know, intelligence agencies had determined had assassinated and just tragically uh, disappeared a journalist. And, you know, so now you have the White House kind of playing a PR game. There was a major, I think it was a Boeing sale, a uh, major airplane sale to a new uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia uh, airliner, uh, you know, airliner fleet. And the White House sent out like a press release. So this is such a great indication of uh, economic growth in the U.S. So the thing is, if the Biden administration is willing to go to Saudi Arabia and make nice, you know, of course the tech sector that is going to do it. That really creates top cover. And so I spoke with as, you know, as many investors and founders and CEOs as I could for this story. Uh, I did reach out, by the way, to every single uh, venture firm startup that was listed. And it was a hell of a lot of them. It was about 60 venture and buyout firms. None of them want to comment. None of them want to talk. But then I reached out to others, just venture capitalists. I've, I've come across those I want to talk to and just picked up the phone. And I think a lot of people were saying, well, if the Biden administration isn't going to stand up to Saudi Arabia, why should we? It, I mean, they were looking for that permission, it seems like, as well, because, like, this is not a, exactly. you know, and this is not a new relationship. Like, you talk about and you've reported um, previously, and I'll, I'll have, there'll be links to all of these uh, articles in the episode description, of course, but you reported last year um, about the the kind of stigma um, that was still hanging over, but starting to get you know, laundered from the Khashoggi killing that, you know, it, it was... You know, that happened in 2018 uh, and that year, right, like, you know, a, a number of these uh, uh, Silicon Valley, um, you know, people who would normally be going to these events like the Davos in the desert or whatever, um, these other conferences, like, you know, they all they all didn't go. Right. Or if they went, they, they and, and even at that time, like, you know, a few years later, they were still hiding their name badges, as you wrote, you know, they didn't want to be seen. They were going but they didn't want to be seen to be there, but it really does. But, but I think that's evidence and this longstanding relationship as you also write, you know, like it was, it was Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund that completely underwrote the, the vision fund, the soft bank vision fund, which then uh, underwrote the entire <laughs> gig economy um, worldwide. All these failing uh, startups yeah. that, you know, wouldn't have had a lifeline otherwise. Exactly. And so like that Saudi Arabian money has always been a vital artery um, of the tech sector. And it's just, it, it, it's really more of a question of how many degrees of separation and plausible deniability is it given? Um, and, uh, I, and, and it seems though that like, but people always knew who was buttering their bread. They always knew where the money was coming from. At least the, 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 the venture capitalists, the investors, the more astute entrepreneurs and founders, they knew, they knew where the money was coming from, but they could kind of deny it. But now, 
um, as you said, like, you know, Biden going over and literally giving, you know, Mohammed bin Salman the, uh, a fist bump um, is that kind of like uh, the signal they were all looking for to be like, oh, good, I can now go on stage and really publicly gush about how the crown prince is a visionary founder uh, and, and all of that. And it, it, it's this really... Um, I mean, quite a, a really cynical game that's that's being played here by people who are simultaneously uh, aware of the optics, um, but also completely beholden to the cash. Yeah, I, there's also a lot of economic opportunity in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's not often, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that Mohammed bin Salman is a great reformer. He's not. I mean, executions have doubled. Women's rights have largely been a kind of curtain dressing situation or window dressing situation there. I don't think a lot has, has changed in terms of, you know, free speech has probably gotten worse, but the economic opportunity is huge for American corporations. I mean, when you talk about Neom, this kind of futuristic, possibly dystopian city that's being built, I mean, that's why Adam Newman is on the stage. That is a huge, you know, realm of, you know, apparently a half trillion dollars is going to be spent building this new enclave. You know, Saudi Arabia has never had tourism. So they're creating a tourism economy. They're creating an entertainment economy, movie theaters, concerts. Again, I don't think these are kind of actual social reforms. They're more like cosmetic reforms, but they do represent, you know, a major opportunity for a country where there are already a lot of U.S. citizens living there, given the petro economy. And now there's big economic opportunities, in, including for a lot of these startups, as far as I can tell. Uh, and it's, you know, where, where, where else is someone, you know, building a, a half trillion dollar city from scratch? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, that's also another thing where it's like, do, you know, investors, you know, one, of course, like you said, of course, there's, there's a lot of money to be made because they're going to start trying to pursue some of these projects sink or swim. They're going to pour half a trillion dollars at them. Right. And, and trying to build this infrastructure for these futuristic cities, for the line for Neom, so on and so forth. So, I mean, do you ever get the sense from investors that also a lot of them are trying to cultivate relationships with them so that their firms are, going to be well-placed to be in those cities, similar, I guess, to what a lot of American corporations might do with, with China, where they might, on the one hand, say, you know, we have qualms or concerns about the supply chain and slave labor in them. We have concerns about civil liberties. We have concerns about ways in which technology might be applied on general populations. But we're totally fine with doing business in a in a country if, as long as the market's long enough or big enough right and as long as there's like you know enough money to be made do investors talk about it in similar ways or you know is that something they just also don't even talk about at all well i, I feel like this might be the the bigger story and something I, you know I'll, I'll keep coming back to is i don't know if i have the complete answer of, of what happened after jamal khashoggi was killed i don't think the money totally dried up i think it went down a little bit, it became more quiet, but I sort of think that most of these relationships were ongoing and just kind of dialed back for a period. And, and that's where these institutions, like what, you know, it's called the future investment initiative Institute. I mean, I almost feel like it's deliberately hard to say this is the think tank that hosted the Miami event because, you know, (laughs) it, it takes a Vox explainer like me 
you know, four sentences to explain how this think tank is connected to the Sovereign Wealth Fund that's connected to MBS, who did all this heinous stuff several years ago, and you've already lost the plot to a lot of readers. So I, I do think some of this is, is intentional complexity, because many of these relationships, I think, have been ongoing. The, the other thing, and this has sort of been the subtext of this conversation, is everything from the tech, especially the military tech, defense tech communities, is all about countering China right now. And I, I do like to, you know, pop some of the myths about China. I mean, obviously, repressive country with a growing military and a strong economy, but the kind of fear-mongering around China, uh, the fact that, you know, their surveillance tech is sometimes construed as being much worse than ours, I mean, a little bit whatever. We can get into that. Yes. But the investors <laughs> right. and CEOs I spoke with were yeah. sort of just like, yeah. well, it, it, it's the lesser of two evils. And it's, you know, that's a difficult thing to hear for me as a journalist who, you know, friends of friends knew Jamal Khashoggi, who, you know, I have dear Saudi friends who have friends and family in, in difficult conditions right now in that in the kingdom. Um, it doesn't really feel like a lesser of two evils to me. But with this entire reordering in Washington and in this, you know, burgeoning military tech community, that's how it comes out that a company like Anduril, Palmer Lucky's kind of military tech unicorn, which I think is valued at eight or $10 billion last time I checked, you know, is being indirectly funded, you know, through one of these venture capital kind of laundering groups, uh, you know, underwritten to some extent by Saudi dollars. So, and, and there was a lot of other companies I came across, I couldn't squeeze them all into this story, but a lot of these, you know, I've become really interested in, in talked with Jathan about this before, covering these military tech startups that are kind of AI evangelists that are um, sort of, you know, we're doing chat GPT for intelligence services before most of the world knew, you know, that that was even going to be a thing, you know, large language processing for the military. And I was sort of not surprised that these are sort of backhandedly, indirectly being underwritten by Saudi sovereign wealth. But that's just because this money is so ubiquitous. And when I was going through these sites, I mean, reaching out for comment to all of these venture funds took a full day just to find all the contacts. I would click through to see who their portfolio companies are. And it was just like a lot of familiar brands. And then you would see, you know, Anduril is, is a little different than, you know, a product or an app. So it was sort of interesting to see the variety there. Yeah, in the venture world, and we've talked about the the kind of political economy, financials of venture capital, but it is worth reiterating that it's very much a kind of power law situation where you have a few extremely large VC funds that lar- that pretty that set the pace and then everybody else herds in and follows them. And you you report in this article that the um uh the uh, the venture fund from Saudi Arabia was it called um Sanabil um I think uh Sanabil yeah, exactly yeah uh, you report that you know there's uh has direct links and list um 
all of the largest VC funds, right? You've got Andreessen Horowitz, Tiger Global, Peter Till's Founders Fund, um, plus Sequoia. But then you you note that Sequoia was on the list, and then a week later removed, and then its place was put Sequoia China, um, a separate legal entity. I would love to have talked to them too. No one at Sequoia wanted to. They they, they didn't want to say anything for the record. <laughs> which you know, this is my question: is like a lot of these venture firms, they have strong values. I mean, they might be the different values from some in, in activist communities or uh, Marxist communities or radical communities, but they have values. You go to their website, they, they say they have ethical values. They say they have, you know, guiding principles and visions. And that was my one question for these 60-so firms, which is just, how does this align with your values? And I thought it was really telling that no one wanted to answer it. Yeah, I mean, I think it tells a lot about what those values actually mean and what they what they stand on. And um, but but like you know those those four uh, VC firms are four of the largest in the world, right? And so that that that's if you want to touch the entire industry, you get into relationships with the handful of large firms, and then everybody else falls in line. Um, and I want to go back as well to this idea of like lesser of two evils because you have a really telling quote here. I think the quote is telling, but also who it's from is telling as well. From uh, uh, the managing director of the Army Venture Capital Corporation, um, right? One of many of these U.S. military organizations and uh, intelligence agencies that have their own investment arms. Um, In the episode that comes out, um, that came out last week, we we talked about like, you know, the founder of NQTEL and the CIA's investment arm and all that. But so you have this quote from the managing director of Army Venture Capital Corporation, and he says, quote, there are times in history when we have the luxury to moralize and stand up for certain values. And there are times when you don't have that luxury and you have to make compromises. And th- th- this is in the in, in exact um, relation to this idea that uh, Saudi Arabia is the lesser of two evils um, between with China, right? And so I think it's telling to also be like, you know, to have... Uh, the Army VC Corporation say that now is not the time to moralize about where money and investment and innovation is coming from. We are in a, you know, the subtext here is, uh, you know, we are in a a, a ramping up um, existential threat uh, with China. I want to um, poke into this a little bit further because I think this relationship is interesting in terms of like we see where the how the VCs and the found and the the uh, the technology founders and entrepreneurs and all that how they're kind of positioning this right and there is absolutely you know again as we talked about last week um, there's a really big push towards uh, this America versus China Cold War with people like Eric Schmidt leading the charge, a ton of other um, uh, major technology companies as well as investors and startup founders are starting to fall in line with this narrative, some of them quite uh, vociferously. So people like Palmer Lucky, you know, Peter Till, that kind of, you know, it's really, I think Peter Till and Eric Schmidt are the kind of like out in front and leading this charge against America first, uh, you know, anti-China rhetoric. 
but you see a lot of other people in Silicon Valley starting to bang this drum, get a bit more comfortable coming out and saying it. So we know where they're they're kind of aligning themselves with which hegemon. Um, I, I, I wonder though, from Saudi Arabia's position, how are they navigating this this kind of um, intensifying conflict um, between the U.S. and China, especially considering that technology policy, industrial policy, these kinds of flows of capital are really one of the first battlegrounds um, in this like ramping up Cold War between the U.S. and China, which puts Saudi Arabia um, really right in the middle of, of the conflict. So how, how do you see them kind of navigating that? Well, I think really deftly. Um, there's this incredible moment. I mean, this is this is already in in the beginning of March, where China brokers a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. These two kind of Middle East powers that have been fighting essentially proxy battles across several countries for you know more than a decade, and. You know, I don't want to put too much stake in China negotiating the deal. There's indications that was actually more likely Iraq negotiated this deal. But the fact that China kind of came in and took credit for it kind of shows that we're entering a post-American moment in the Middle East. And I think Saudi Arabia recognizes that. And they're kind of, you know, playing their cards really, as I say, deftly. I mean, the fact that Sequoia China ends up on that list of companies they or uh, venture firms that Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth is underwriting, there was actually quite a few Chinese firms. These weren't all just U.S. venture firms. Um, and I And I think there is a kind of understanding that you can play great powers off of one another quite to the benefit of someone like Mohammed bin Salman. Moving in on this idea of a post-America moment, I mean, I think one question I have, or, you know, looking at this is like, okay, so we have this, we have a lot of flows of capital that are coming from states connecting with investors and, and, and founders. And so we have founders creating corporations that we might not want that are undermining our own social safety nets, threadbare safety net, backed by uh, regimes or countries that we might not want to get behind uh, these enterprises also in the first place. I mean, like in, in that sort of situation, what if anything is done about it? Or is there a sense that there needs to be anything done about it? I mean, is there a sense that this is all happening in the economy and the marketplace, so it's not really a concern, or that it's too delicate geopolitically to really navigate, or it's just like there's just too much money for people to really, you know, want to turn the lights on at the party? <laughs> I mean, I, I think the narrative that there's a kind of inevitability to U.S.-China conflict really needs to be poked at. And, you know, that's kind of the first... Thing, and that's what I've been trying to do more broadly, I think, in a lot of my stories for Vox, which is like, how do we get here? And I, and I often ask experts this, secure, national security experts or political analysts, like, can you pinpoint the moment to me where China became the U.S.'s enemy? And I'm not trying to minimize kind of threats, you know, in terms of rights and, and the surveillance power and, uh, you know, what China does represent, you know, as, as a power in Asia that is not democratic by any means. And and by the way, I think this is why MBS gets along pretty well with Xi. I mean, I think they share a lot of tenets of how they see the world. I mean, this is strongman politics. But the kind of 
default to the new Cold War and the way that the Biden administration following the lead of Trump uh, has really just kind of pivoted from war on terror to war on China is really damn scary. Uh, so I just feel like I'm trying to ask sort of the big, simple questions at Vox and lay these lay, lay all these questions out for readers because it sort of becomes a background condition that there's an inevitability to conflict with China and that, okay, so we're going to have to work with countries like Saudi Arabia and, and induce them into being on our side. And then, you know, I want to say, you know, wait a minute, they, Saudi Arabia has been waging a really horrific war in Yemen. That's cooled down a little bit. There, there has been kind of tenuous ceasefires. Uh, you know, obviously the internal situation in Saudi Arabia is, is really horrific. Is this the kind of country we, we want to be working with? And, you know, some people do make the case that, you know, it, it is, as I don't like the lesser of two evil uh, kind of cliche, but, you know, maybe that case can be made, but it, it needs to be a strong debate. It can't just be kind of, you know, you go back over there uh, as as President Biden did last summer and, and you kind of make up and make nice because, you know, from a Petro angle, uh, Saudi Arabia has just been kind of laughing at the United States constantly with these OPEC announcements that have, you know, sent oil prices up and up and up and up. I wonder if we could flip this a little, a little on its head too and ask a, a kind of a different framing. So, you know, we talked about how like Biden going over kind of gave the green light to Silicon Valley that, okay, like uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is open for business, right? And we can be really open about doing that business. I, I, do you, I know this is, this is probably speculation, but do you speculate that that part of the reason why Biden is creating these really open and friendly relationships with Saudi Arabia is precisely for that reason of um, of economics, of finance, right? Of, of, of signaling, hey, Saudi Arabia, the U.S. is open for business, right? Like, you can come to us, you can safely put your money into, you know, buying weapons and airplanes and technologies from us. You can safely put your money into Silicon Valley, which is, by the way, the bedrock of our whole economy now, apparently. Like, you know, do you... Do you think that this was like a really intentional um, kind of foreign policy, foreign finance move by the Biden administration? So the way I think about it and, and the way I often think about this administration is it's really important to people who are around Biden. Um, I, I mean, I do think, you know, Biden is a foreign policy president. He does think about this stuff. He has a somewhat conservative worldview. But I'm really interested in his top Middle East advisor, a gentleman named Brett McGurk, who had in the offseason before going back into the White House, he'd served uh, Bush, Obama, Trump. This is his fourth president. He started off his career as a kind of lawyer for the CPA during the early days of the Iraq occupation. And to connect it all back is he was an advisor to a defense tech company called Primer that's super revolving door connected and does natural language processing for military and intelligence. But why do I bring up Brett and, and 
another gentleman, Amos Hochstein, who was a uh, top energy advisor, just moved over, I think, to the White House recently. He was previously a lobbyist for Equatorial Guinea in the mid-2000s. So both of these guys are pretty comfortable, in my opinion, working with dictators. There's a kind of devil-you-know quotient that these are not human rights-focused officials. In fact, in the uh, State Department right now, there is no senior appointee in the top human rights role. Uh, that the person who was up for it, you know, couldn't get appointed, and, and that's just empty. So you have an acting official, but you know, an acting official is not the same as a appointee, Senate-approved Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Rights, and Labor. So you have these two gentlemen, uh, Mr. McGurk and Mr. Hochstein. They have real influence in the president's inner circle. They're very comfortable working with someone like an MBS. And I think they're very scared about oil prices, and rightly so, right? I mean, in terms of politics, that is one of those pocketbook issues. But it does come at the expense of a kind of more innovative set of policies. This is a real default kind of uh reflecting more what the past three or four presidents have done in the Middle East, rather than thinking, you know, just because uh, working with dictators is, is the path of least resistance, that doesn't mean it's, it's going to ultimately lead to beneficial policies. Right. This concern about oil prices, I mean, does Saudi Arabia's attempts, gestures, threats, vague threats about the dollarization playing to this and playing to any of the discussions here, you know, because I'm also, the venture capital investments end up being very geopolitical. There's a lot of techno-nationalists who are getting involved here, but also at the same time getting involved here, you know, with a country that, I mean, I can't, I can't see them, you know, deciding to throw the the petrodollar system into the floor, but the threats in of themselves don't also mesh with you know, like what you were talking about, some of these values that some of these people have, where it's like, we are in the tech business so we can protect America from any disruptive threat to its geopolitical dominance. Um, but we are also engaged in this very complex relationship with someone who's profiting from us, like disintegrating a lot of the things that have preserved America yeah, I, and I mean, hegemony. I, I think that's definitely true. I mean, the de-dollarization question is really interesting. I mean, the fact that Saudi Arabia, by the way, is not, you know, totally on the U.S.'s side in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. So that means they haven't really signed on to any of the sanctions. Uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I think there's this whole great power moment that's happening, and it's kind of testing all the bounds that we've become really familiar with. Not, not that, you know, the U.S. has been a true hegemonic power over the past three decades since the end of the Cold War, but it's approximated that. And, and now a lot of those articles of faith are kind of crumbling. And so that's where Saudi Arabia moving its weight around. You can see how the economic power it has is, is pretty significant. Uh, and that it's actually kind of getting what it wants, which is, you know, to bring it back to this conference in Miami, it's kind of like, welcome back to the party, MBS. Like, have a seat at the table. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't physically there. He hasn't been showing up to these conferences uh, in some time. But, you know, he is positioning himself. And, and as a royal who's in his late 30s and, you know, is likely to rule, uh, at, you know, when or if he becomes king for several, several decades to come, uh, he is positioning himself in a world where, you know, even if 
petrodollars are no longer as prominent, he will have that kind of authority through this immense capital that, you know, they're kind of holding on to. Yeah, that always has been... Um, it, like quite explicitly, I think the 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 intention with a lot of this, like directing so much of the sovereign wealth fund into the tech sector, and then doing so <laughs> through these like internal investments in like Neom and the Line and and things like that. Like you know, I think it always has been this kind of you know, technology is the future. You know, oil is the present, but technology is the future. Um, and this is there, and you know. Really trying to take the 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 vast uh, petrodollar uh, wealth that they have and turn it into something more sustainable, if if not uh, literally sustainable in an environmental or social sense, then sustainable at least in a financial sense. Well, there's there's some other interesting stuff happening here too, which is you know China is one of the biggest trading partners. I think it is the biggest trading partner with the Persian Gulf. And so Saudi Arabia is also, you know, trying to join BRICS. Saudi Arabia is trying to join this Shanghai Cooperation Organization. There's sort of all these other kind of choices that are happening that are really significant. And, you know, it's crazy because, you know, Saudi Arabia at its core depends on U.S. largesse in terms of the U.S. military presence in the Middle East, all these bases, protecting oil pathways. Um, you know, the U.S. has really had Saudi Arabia's back. And then there's this interesting thing happening where it's you have a young crown prince that's kind of making some pretty risky geopolitical choices. Yeah, I, I do want to uh, change gears just a little bit. You mentioned the conferences. I want to I want to dig into them a little bit because I think that they are really these like fascinating performances of of capital, of strategy and visions, and and you know, and and you weren't at this Miami one, but you were at one uh, in New York um, last year in Manhattan, and these kinds of you know, and, and you know uh, much more than we do about these like Davos in the desert um, kind of uh, events that they host. Like, I want to get into this a little bit and I'll preface it by saying that like, um, I think that it, to, in my view from, uh, from the outside, like these conferences really do kind of focus on, on one hand, like, you know, laundering, uh, the Saudi Arabia's reputation while also kind of putting forward um, in a really like self-conscious manner this this idea that like Saudi Arabia and Riyadh uh, are thought leaders, they're global cities, they are on par with, you know, New York and London and Milan and Be uh, Beijing and, you know, whatever, like, you know, they, they are on, on par with all of these, uh, kind of global cities. Like it's very much trying to create this image. And, and one way to do that is by create, you know, hosting these lavish conferences where you can invite people. And that almost doesn't really matter what happens at the conference it more matters who was at the conference and who is seen to be at the conference uh right and and you know we can talk about um these more like investment focused and economic like world economic forum style focused uh conferences 
But they also host a lot of other more low profile, but similar, you know, kind of multi front, uh, uh, conferences as well. And I know this because I was invited to one of them earlier this year, which I did not go to because like you, I could not stomach, um, you know, flying and, uh, you know, and dining and all of that on, uh, on Saudi Arabia's dollar. But I was invited to, um, an international judicial conference on the topic of the future of technologies and digital transformation in the judicial field, um, hosted by the Ministry of Justice at the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton uh, in Saudi Arabia. Um, and it was uh, a forum to talk about um, cutting-edge issues in digital technologies and human rights. Um, you know, a place where Saudi Arabia is absolutely the best place to do that kind of discussion. But one, I was uh, really quite um, uh, taken aback that I had somehow gotten on their radar um, and to a degree where they thought it would be like like beneficial to them to invite me to one of these uh, more academic-focused conferences. Um, and two, I, it was just interesting as well to know uh, and have some kind of peek into this this world of these kinds of conferences. Like, I know, for example, Saudi Arabia is not the only country that does this. Like, um, I, I worked on a project when I was an undergrad. I was a research assistant on a project about um, sustainability ethics and engineering. Um, and the, the professors on the project got an invite from Qatar to go to Doha for one of these conferences on like global sustainability ethics and, and the future of engineering or something like that. And so it's like, you know, of course, the, like Qatar is going to try to be like, look, we care a lot about ethics and sustainability. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's interesting, this world of these conferences. And I know a lot of academics uh, have a, a lot less compuncture um, about getting a first-class flight, being put up at the Ritz-Carlton, um, having a week of being wined and dined. You know, they're happy to do so. Um, and, and, and I think these, these countries are happy to, to, to take advantage of that. So... You know, just with that, could could you talk a little bit more about these, like these bigger scale conferences um, that that you've reported sure. on? So it's interesting you you, you mentioned. I mean, there is a whole. It, it's not just around government and policy, which is this Future Investment Initiative Institute, FII Institute, kind of Davos in the desert thing. But they do this in art and media, and you know, I've been to Dubai and I've been to Qatar covering. Uh, as, a, as an arts writer looking at some of, some of these equivalents. But this one that I went to in New York uh, in the fall was kind of on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly. So it's sort of like having your own Davos, you know, 10 blocks away from the UN while you had all these muckety-mucks in Manhattan. Uh, and, and presumably that's why some of these kind of senior uh, investment and economic officials from Saudi Arabia were in the city. Uh, but this was... I mean, it was sort of jaw-dropping, the opulence here. It was in the Pierre Hotel. This is where, you know, Dodi Fayyad, Princess Di's uh, lover, used to have a suite at all times. Uh, you know, it's overlooking Central Park. There are these incredible, like, frescoes and murals. And what was so remarkable to me, because I used to, you know, one of my first jobs was hosting think tank events as, you know, a little, the, the person who checks in people at the door. Um, 
This staff was incredible. There was a QR code when you walk in. There were dozens and dozens of people kind of making uh, memes out of what speakers were saying and a stage in the round with lapel mics and incredible uh, technical prowess in terms of event production. Uh, The food was really kind of beautiful. I was sort of I have to say, too disgusted to to dive into it. And I just tried to speak to as many speakers and participants as I could and just started chatting them up and sort of asking them these big, dumb questions like, why are you here? What do you think about Khashoggi, uh, et cetera? And, and it was this kind of techno-utopian that they had fielded this kind of massive survey, uh, global survey about sort of what what is your priority. It was a 13-country survey of 130,000 respondents. So nothing impossible, but a kind of huge expression of their wealth. And it's sort of like, what is your main priority? And um, it was so milquetoast and so kind of silly technocrat speak. They unveiled all this report that sort of said nothing and sort of grappled with none of the real issues that is happening in Saudi Arabia. And when I kind of spoke with the kind of the guys in suits and ties, they were basically saying, you know, Saudi Arabia is too big to ignore. That's why we're here. Um, th- then I bumped into Jared Kushner. So I kind of walked after him and I was, you know, had my camera on. and was trying to ask him about Jamal Khashoggi and he just kind of walked away from me Um and I figured, God, they're going to kick me out of this thing. And they didn't. I, I mean, I think there's a kind of like, you know, they are kind of all powerful. And in fact, I got an invitation to the Miami uh, conference and they said they would fly me down and put me up in a hotel after I'd written what I hoped was a pretty uh, scathing article about this earlier conference in the fall. So, I mean, I think this is the kind of invincibility of, of how this institution and how Saudi capital in the United States sees itself, which is sort of, you're going to come back, you're going to want to check out the buffet, there is a kind of convening power, uh, you're going to want to see who's in the room. And I was laughing because th- there was this detail from a New York Times story after the Khashoggi killing where uh, as you mentioned, Jathan, people were hiding their name tags. So the bankers from major financial institutions, you know, didn't want their names seen by the press because this Davos in the desert happened just a week or so after Khashoggi was killed. The timing was pretty embarrassing. But at this conference at the Pierre Hotel, the name tags were so small, you couldn't really see them from a couple steps away. So I was trying to like get an inventory of, of which nonprofits, which financial institutions, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was pretty well represented. And um, I mean, the whole thing was, was sort of disturbing. It was sort of like being in, you know, sort of a fear and loathing in, in Riyadh situation, but, you know, in Manhattan. Grim, <laughs> Grim. I, you know, I, I. What, what do you think's going on there when they invite you back to come for the next one after the article that you wrote? I mean, I don't know if it's just an any press is is good press situation. I mean, there is this kind of interesting thing that happens in these conferences where very little of it is about Saudi Arabia. It's mostly about climate and this like ESG thing that corporations are so worked up about right now or thinking about 
the real estate crisis that we face collectively as a as a globe or these kind of big issues and like I think we could all agree these are probably some of the big issues that we face as a global society. But what's so disturbing, and this is why I think the Adam Newman, uh, Andreessen Horowitz scene resonated so much, is then you get these telling moments. It's like most of the conversation is about some weird pie-in-the-sky, technocratic, utopian solution to to real-life global problems we face. But then there'll be these little infomercials where you had like the mayor of Miami uh, fist bumping the head of the Saudi sovereign wealth fund who's you know, the gatekeeper that everyone wants to talk to there. And it's sort of like, Oh, this is what's really happening here. Um, and, and it's, just, I think it's a similar thing happening in sport with the kind of the new golf tournament that Saudi Arabia's created live. It's happening with art. There's this MISC, which was the art institution Mohammed bin Salman started. Now it's more behind the scenes, but you know, he wanted to compete with Qatar. You know, he reportedly bought that Da Vinci. Now they're creating a huge arts district in this uh, part of Saudi Arabia called Al Ula. And I keep seeing my artist friends kind of showing up there for festivals. I mean, there, this is not just happening in the kind of social issues, foreign policy sphere. It's it's sort of like a whole shadow government of conferences and kind of TED Talk, Davos speak agendas where, you know, you're, you're going to get hooked because one of your issues is going to be discussed. And, you know, when when I spoke with participants, and oh, I should mention Sam Bankman-Fried was a was a attendee at the Manhattan one. Uh, people, they, they want to have their kind of fifteen minutes with 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 some of these gatekeepers, and and um, I don't know. I guess it works for them. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it really comes down to like everything we've been talking about is that. All of, all of these things are are various forms of like soft power, right? Like because um, Saudi Arabia, I, it, it's a it's Saudi Arabia in a lot of ways is an extremely interesting country, just like in terms of its geopolitics, um, because it is a you know a a really uh, regressive and repressive authoritarian dictatorship, but it is also a pretty small country in the Middle East, um, but also. Uh, extremely, extremely wealthy, right? And so, like, it can do all all of these kinds of um, uh, uh, aspirations that other regressive, repressive, authoritarian dictatorships have. You know, all of all of the aspirations they have. Um, uh, when they do it, it comes off as uh, you know, really like. Uh, gauche, right? Because it has to be these like over the top, like flamboyant performances of their power, but it can only really do that in like an internal sense or, or in an interior sense, right? Um, it, it can't project that power um, outside of itself because it doesn't have the capital uh, to do that. Um, but Saudi Arabia does, right? It does not have the size or like m- m- militaristic um, power, geopolitical power to be a like a hegemon. It does, or to to be the U.S. and Ch- or China, um, definitely not that. But but even to be on par with like um, the U.K. or France or something in terms of being a kind of 
military power having real kind of um, you know geopolitical power in the in the world. It doesn't have that ability. But what it does have is a lot of capital that it can spend to project that softer power outside of itself and ingratiate itself to these other um, kind of centers of 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 material power um in the world and i don't i can't really think of any other country that has that kind of position or has that kind of ability which i think is one reason why it's such a bizarre and interesting country um in the things that it does um and in all of these like multiple fronts of soft power that it fights on because it has so much capital that it is able to you know prop up the entire, you know, or at least be a major artery for the entire um, technology sector. Um, it's able to be uh, a, a key cornerstone of the oil industry. Um, it's also able to uh, put on these kind of, you know, thought leadership conferences, um, as well as these cultural conferences, as well as these academic conferences, right? Like all of this stuff is just ways of spending a lot of money to do soft power. Um, and, and that's like, really, it seems like that is what Saudi Arabia is also extremely dependent on. Like these are not just things it's doing um, because they're like, you know, uh, pet interest of MBS or things that they're doing because they're like, well, we have a lot of money and like, it, you know, we need ways to spend it. So we might as well throw lavish conferences and Manhattan ballrooms and things like that. It's like, no, I think they're doing it because they absolutely need to, right? Like they, like their position in the world really depends on them um, being a, 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 a kind of center of soft power, but being so only through dearth of their ability to spend a lot of money and, and uh, th uh, throw a lot of capital around. No, I, I I think you you really nailed it. I mean, it that's why it's it's interesting if you've read this new book on McKinsey by these New York Times uh, investigative reporters. When McKinsey comes to town, Saudi Arabia and MBS, you know, play a really big role in that that McKinsey story. I mean, the whole notion that MBS is a quote unquote reformer depends on these kind of events, and it depends on this convening power. I mean. I, when I was at this New York conference, you know, people are there because who the speakers are, uh, you know, Michael Milken, the kind of think tank guru guy, the junk bond king, and so, or Nouriel Robini or Paul Romer or these kind of like kind of thinkery types were there, and and that's what gets people out. No one's gonna come see MBS be a keynote in 2023, but sort of the influential people around him that you know, hold the purse strings or the people that those folks can bring out, you know, it starts to be more interesting. And, and look, I think Qatar is, is very savvy about this. I, I went to this conference that was co-hosted with the New York times and the, and basically the ministry of culture in Qatar, uh, five, six years ago. And, and, you know, Jeff Koons, the superstar artist was there and Marina Abramovich. And, you know, and that's why I went, I was like, okay, what, what is going on here? You get out the kind of biggest names of pop culture art to Qatar to speak, you know, at a New York times conference, like, w w what does that all mean? 
Um, so it, it's following a model too that I think uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi have have done pretty expertly in terms of you know they create these flagship universities, they kind of create um, obviously the museums, the Guggenheim and the Louvre, and others have created branches in the Gulf. I mean, this is all kind of a giant franchise operation that is obviously an expression of soft power. It creates a kind of legitimacy because none of these countries are democracies. So they don't have legitimacy from their people, from from elections. So they kind of create this notion of a liberal, not democratic, but a liberal society that has the same kind of institutions that are, are more familiar. And, um, and look, I mean, I'll keep coming back to it. The fact that the Biden administration, like the Trump administration, and like the Obama administration, tends to gobble up these narratives. And, you know, it was the Obama administration that rolled out the red carpet for MBS when he was just a young deputy crown prince and and wasn't all that well known. I mean, this is really enabled by some of the policymakers in the United States and elsewhere. But the soft power story is is just as important as the hard power story. Yeah, I guess you're right. I I, I didn't really give enough credit to uh, the UAE and Qatar for doing much the same stuff. But I just, to my view, not at the same level or the same degree as Saudi Arabia. Um, but that might also just be skewed because uh, I focus so much on the tech sector, and Saudi Arabia is such a central part of tech finance. No, it's crazy. And you just start seeing, you know, every single thing has a link somehow to Saudi Arabia. I mean, just sharing this story with 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 uh, policymakers, friends, and even investors were kind of shocked. They were like, oh, I didn't quite connect the dots there. Uh, so I, I do think it's kind of knowingly obscured. Uh, and I think that's why it was so surprising Last month, when Sinabel, this uh, venture arm of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, released these names because they didn't provide the dates, they didn't say, you know, when the funds were getting it. It could have been a year ago, could have been last week, but it was just kind of this gusher of names to represent this gusher of dollars. And in fact, I think that made it a lot harder for the kind of financial outlets to cover it because it was like you go from very little knowledge of it to uh, 60 or so firms. And then, you know, you know better than I, the way that these are structured, you know, no one wants to talk about their limited partners. Uh, most of the founders and CEOs don't really know where that money's coming from. So it's kind of, you know, by design benefits, uh, Saudi Arabia and its dollars. Yeah, it is wild that they really did the uh, the deluge tactic of a deposition, right? Where it's like um, the 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 best way is not to censor information, but to release all information at once, um, and so the, then it's impossible to sort through and make sense of it. You talked a little bit about, and and you've talked throughout about the ways in which to kind of push back and perforate, you know, the, the this myth about the inevitability of conflict about the lesser of there being a lesser of two evils about this making sense of as a way to just um you know drive capital into the tech sector you know is there any talk at all from the administration 
um, or any or officials from the administration, or people who used to be in the administration, kind of like asking or raising basic questions about this relationship that has emerged and now become, you know, pretty integral well, to uh, Silicon Valley. Gentleman, uh, Michael Posner, who is sort of the top human rights official in the Obama administration in the State Department. And he kind of laid out the moral hazards, I think, really clearly, which are like, this is not a country, Saudi Arabia, that respects rule of law. So, you know, you may be getting that deluge of capital to underwrite your products right now. But, you know, if you're over there, you could really get into trouble, your employees. It's just incredibly risky. And I think that's the part that I feel like is often missing from this conversation is like the the whole kind of anti-China narrative takes up so much oxygen that we're not paying attention to the very real risks of kind of standing by MBS. I mean, this is a guy who reportedly kidnapped the Lebanese prime minister. The Ritz-Carlton that I think you mentioned is where he had basically the biggest hostage-taking situation. I should have gone to that conference. That was a historical Ritz-Carlton that I could have stayed at. I mean, this is a risky guy to put in with, and, and there's no indication he'll stick by his word. And so I kind of closely monitor every statement every time the Biden administration has a phone call with a Saudi official. And it's it's sort of 50-50 whether human rights are going to come up. But honestly, that's that might seem really small. But just to make sure every statement, this is a low bar. I'm not saying that this is like the panacea policy solution, but every conversation that uh, administration official has with Saudi Arabia, you got to have human rights centered. And that's literally what this administration said its policy would be. And it's just not done it. So it totally undermines American prestige in the world. I mean, we can problematize what American prestige means, but as a kind of global power, if you're going to say you're going to hold Saudi Arabia to a standard on human rights and you just don't do it, well, that ain't going to happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, as we were saying as well, like Saudi Arabia is a a massive problem has has a massive problem to understate it uh, with human rights, right? Like, uh, um, and and it's that whole region as well. I mean, you know, the the World Cup um, in Qatar was obviously riddled with human rights issues and the construction, um, and that just goes back to the 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 nature of like the kind of. Um, slave immigrant labor uh, in in the countries. I've heard stories as well of, you know, to that, like, you know, you have your quote, the quote from Michael Posner, the, um, you know, uh, Obama's top human rights official, um, you know, telling, you know, American businessmen, uh, people tread carefully, right? And this idea that they're not, they don't respect rule of, of law. And I've heard so many stories of people um, not in Riyadh, but in Dubai, um, right, where you run afoul of a UAE citizen, which in these countries, there are very few citizens, right? They're, they're, you know, as a proportion of the inhabitants of the country. And it's the citizens who have all of the rights and have access to, you know, the, the capital and the dividends and all of that from the petro wealth. And, um, and, and, you know, I've heard stories of people in Dubai who run a, run a foul of a UAE citizen. Um, and even if it was completely, the uh their fault you know they 
they're not the ones that are punished for it, right? The um, the the visitor, the immigrant, um, is the one punished for for in, for anything. And so it's just it is absolutely. I mean, even at just this smaller level, right? Of like, you know, it, it's wild to think of like Ben Horowitz bringing all of his uh, portfolio companies and founders to Riyadh on these tours of essentially being like, this is this is where your money comes from. You know, this is who's uh, really bringing home the bacon here for, 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 for these companies. You know, while, while to think of, uh, of these kinds of regular trips happening, um, while at the same time, I think also really telling that like, um, uh, you know, for a lot of times these are uh, visits that, that don't necessarily happen at, in Riyadh, they happen in other places like in Manhattan or in Miami or other, con- uh, um, other, other countries that are kind of hosting these events. Or if these events do happen in my, my experience too, it's very rare that you are going outside of the conference hotel. You know, like if you're at the Ritz Carlton at this conference, you are probably not leaving the Ritz Carlton. Um, or if you are, you're going to like very specific places where other events are happening. Um, you're not going, you know, take, taking a, taking a tour, going out and having a, a night on the town or anything like that. Like, you know, I, I think in other words, there's this, I think there's this recognition of the reality of the situation for people who go to these conferences, who partner with um, Saudi Arabia, who get the, who get access to the money. And for them, all of these kinds of conditions are just, are just that they're just conditions of a deal, right? You know, it's like, okay, I'll go to the conference. Well, so what I'm thinking is how you know when you go to these things and this is what i would say to the, you know i don't know how many vcs or founders are listening i hope a few which is you know call up the human call up the human rights experts oh, there's there. a few. call up the <laughs> you know i'm i'm thinking about you know the united arab emirates there's a guy named ahmed mansour a human rights uh, activist who's been in jail um, i don't even know how many years now he's been in jail at least since 2018 i believe i interviewed him Back in the day, and you know, he was an early target, I think, of NSO spyware. He had his money drained out of his account. He was kind of beaten up, and he's been, you know, in jail because he started a news forum, like one of those old school uh, social networking kind of. Uh, I don't even know. I'm sort of blanking because it's so first generation social media, but like essentially a news group about politics in the United Emirates and has always been targeted for that as even as an Emirati citizen. In, in, in this particular story, I don't quote any Saudi human rights advocates, but I'm talking to them all the time. And, you know, as I say, their family and friends are at risk and they're still speaking up. They're still monitoring abuses. Um, so yeah, just reach out to them. There's a lot of great organizations from the kind of stalwart human rights organizations that have Saudi office, not offices in Saudi Arabia, but researchers working in Saudi Arabia to some Gulf and and Saudi Arabia focused ones that are just, you know, monitoring the day by day of all this because, um, I mean, it's a big deal. It's, it's a big deal just to, just to bring it up and raise it because Khashoggi was the case study and it's an absolute tragedy, but he's just one of, you know, hundreds and thousands who've been caught up in this dragnet of a, of a really brutal crown prince.
we can start wrapping up there. And and I, I want to say as well, like I you know I don't even think the like there's not even an argument to be made that there that there's a trade off, right? Well, you know you you know all money is dirty, and hey, what's some human right violations? For you know, uh, funding billions of dollars into uh, innovation and the future and progress, and you know, but that's there's not even an argument to be made there because as we as we created this podcast to talk about and have been doing for like over 250 episodes now, all of this tech is like shit at best, and at uh, you know at worst, it is actively. Yeah socially harmful uh and toxic um and that like you know so so there's there's no argument to be made that like you know hey we're at least the you know the these uh dirty dollars are being put into um shiny innovations it's like no these dirty dollars are being put into creating an extremely toxic uh technology sector um that produces uh technologies designed to either exploit and extract uh, people or directly contribute to, um, you know, U.S. military power, policing power, um, all of these things, right? And so, like, in a, in a lot of ways, it's the greatest joke that Saudi Arabia could ever play on all of us was to uh, um, gather, you know, have uh, all of this dirty money um, created, you know, out of uh, pumping petrochemicals uh, into the environment and into our bodies, and then using that money to fund the creation of a technology sector that then would create uh, 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 other systems that would um, oppress, uh, surveil, extract, and exploit us even further, right? Like, um, <laughs> well, and Uber and DoorDash and Instacart are way, you know, into new verbs that uh, explain our present reality. Exactly. I mean, the one thing that stood out, I spoke with a really influential CEO who, who didn't want to be named, you know, you can understand why, because every person in this industry is taking this money. And what, what this person said to me is, Andreessen Horowitz doesn't need this money. They've got the money. I mean, yes, it's a lot of Saudi dollars, but Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia China, pardon me. Um, some of these major funds, Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, I don't, as far as I know, I don't think they're that short up on cash. So it, it really tells a different story, which is the kind of insatiable urge to... I don't know. You guys talk about this more every day than me. Uh, accumulate capital. <laughs> yeah, cool. it's, it's it's something a little deeper than just you know one kingdom, one crown prince. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a great discussion on some really great and necessary reporting, Jonathan. So uh, thank you so much. Where you know, we'll have links to um, these articles in the episode description, but. What else? Is there anything else you would like to direct people's attention to? We'll, of course, have your Twitter in the episode description as well. I loved it. It's so great to hear from you guys. If, if any of you, your listeners, have questions, have ideas, I think this is there's a kind of democratically horizontal thing we can do at Vox, which is answer the big, simple questions and, and kind of bring some complexity. So if there's policies 
questions that, that you want to bring to the table or tips or story ideas. I'd love to hear from anybody. I'd love to hear from you guys. Great. Excellent. Well, yeah, we'll have, so we'll have links to your, your Twitter. Everybody uh, give Jonathan a follow there, read his articles at Vox and, uh, and reach out if you got anything to share. And um, you can of course always find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, so until next time, Later. Adios. Yo, 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 yo,